Hello, everybody. Welcome back from what I hope was a great summer. Um, I would also like to take a second here to thank our sponsor today, Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill got its start back in 2014, uh, addressing a known uh, issue of making billing easier for our clinicians. Um, they worked directly with our provincial health, health insurance providers and programs um, and have a good, strong success story. We all know mental health and burnout for our physicians has always been a concern, and that was really brought to the forefront in the last few years. Today, we're going to discuss some of the administrative component of that role and of the role that plays in burnout. So Andre Picard once told me that I tend to do a Twitter or a, well, what's now, now known as X version of intros, and that is true. So to lead us through today's discussion, I would like to welcome the past president of Ontario Medical Association and active physician, Dr. Nadia Alam, and CEO for Dr. Bill, Sarah Wilkins. So, uh, Nadia and Sarah, it's all yours. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, thank you very much for having us here today. I'm very excited to do this presentation. So hopefully today, um, we're going to cover patients over paperwork. That's the, essentially the idea. Many of us got into healthcare, whether you're a physician, a nurse, a frontline healthcare worker, um, or whether you're in administration at the back end, um, which helps pull healthcare together, you're in it for the patients, right? Whether it's through personal experience, whether it's through someone you know, or whether it's just because of um, what Hippocrates said, right? Wheresoever there's the art of medicine, there's that love of humanity. Whether it's that, whatever brings you in, it's not paperwork. And fortunately, paperwork is one of the highest, one of the leading causes of burnout. Um, so let's get started. The agenda for today is fairly straightforward. Um, I'll start, I'll set the landscape, I'll talk about what burnout will look like and can look like on in a very practical way. And then I'll give it over to Sarah Wilkinson, who's going to talk about um, one of the major administrative hassles that physicians go through when taking care of patients, when running their clinics. So burnout. We know that burnout is, is a workplace phenomenon, right? Whether you call it workplace exhaustion, moral injury, um, compassion fatigue, it's all the same. And major causes of it are, are generally organizational, right? Whether it's an independent primary care clinic, whether it's in long-term care, whether it's in hospital, doesn't matter. This is an environmental workplace phenomenon. And it can be caused by inefficient work processes and environments such as increased administrative tasks, um, physician entered documentation, clerical burden, um, whether it's caused by excessive workloads, work home conflicts where someone tries to set up boundaries and then realizes it's not actually compatible with their workload. Um, it can be caused by lack of control, lack of autonomy, um, less time spent on meaningful work. And I'm gonna talk about this a bit later. Abraham Verghese or Dr. Abraham Verghese actually talked about this in a very poetic and resonant way. Um, and then also poor organizational support structures, inadequate support for second victim effects. And we're really seeing that coming out of the pandemic as we all deal with this essentially global, globally traumatic event. 
limited opportunities of collaboration or knowledge or familiarity with leadership structures, and then rapidly changing work context and care delivery models. Now, the OMA did a survey of Ontario physicians recently. Back in 2017, they found that 29% of Ontario physicians reported high levels of burnout, and this was pre-pandemic. In 2021, so post-pandemic, that number had jumped to 34%. So we're not talking about just exhaustion. We're talking about higher levels of burnout that go into um, feeling useless at work, essentially. The CMA echoes these numbers, although their figures are even more stark. Um, Pre-pandemic, again in 2017, they found 30% of physicians reported high levels of burnout. That number post-pandemic has jumped to 53%. So again, this is a workplace phenomenon. This is not the same as a stress response to an acute or chronic stressor. So here are the symptoms of burnout, right? So you've got emotional exhaustion, you've got depersonalization, reduced personal accomplishment. What does that actually look like in human terms? This. This is a quote from a family physician or a physician in Calgary, and it was from a paper by the Canadian Medical Protective Association. They included this, and this encapsulates for me what burnout looks like for physicians. I'm exhausted, I don't care, and I'm useless. And these feelings, these dissociative feelings of alienation, not just from work-related activities, but also their own personal, uh, their families, their friends, um, feeling cynical over everything, feel emotionally distancing themselves. It can present as, as physical symptoms like headaches, stomach aches. Um, it can include feeling drained. So emotionally exhausted, not just physically exhausted, unable to cope or, or feeling unmotivated to get work done. It feels like you're that close to that straw, that proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. And then leading this, all of this, um, all of this leading to underperformance, right? Having difficulty doing everyday tasks at work or at home, being unable to concentrate, experiencing a lack of creativity, which is necessary, right? That's a necessary component of problem solving, which is used part as part and parcel of practicing medicine and practicing in healthcare in general. So the true impact of burnout is is substantial. Right? There is a substantial economic and personal cost to, to the healthcare system. Um, in 2021, one of my colleagues, Dr. Sylvia Matthew, pointed out that there was a survey by McKinsey um, which showed that for every dollar invested in the healthcare system, you get a return on that investment of $4. That is extraordinary. You don't usually see that in any other field. So when you have um, a crisis like this, essentially a silent epidemic of burnout, you start seeing that loss in return of investment, right? And in, not just in dollars and cents, but the, the impact on patients as they notice um, that loss of empathy, that lack of um, the usual level of job performance, increase in medical mistakes, friends and family of physicians who are burned out notice that, that their, physician, their friends are not able to spend time with them. 
they feel they seem emotionally and physically exhausted they're distant and as i mentioned before they become cynical um and then for our healthcare system practically speaking physicians who are burned out they work fewer hours they retire earlier they contribute to um, the worsening shortage, the current existing shortage, and the worsening shortage of physicians in Ontario and across Canada. And there was a survey by the CMA, the National Physician Health Survey, that showed 46% of Canadian physicians were thinking about reducing their hours in the next 24 months. Um, more recently, in a survey of Toronto family physicians found that one in five we're planning to close their practices outright, not just reduce their clinical hours, but close their practices in the next five years. So this is where I do get a bit personal. This is what burnout looks like on the front lines. It is insidious. It, it kind of sneaks up on you. You start with working a lot during the pandemic, right? Like I talked about, this was a global crisis, a global tra a traumatic event. I was working 70 to 80 hours a week, which is not surprising for a physician during that time. It's not surprising for nurses at that time. It's certainly not surprising for the healthcare administrators at that time. We were all dealing with rapidly changing policies around infection precautions and managing the pandemic in terms of the expected need um, or the anticipated need on the healthcare system, as well as the, the surprising need in the long-term care sector. We were all trying to disseminate information or support evidence-based information that was reliable to the publics so that they were in the know, right? And this is across social media, this is across traditional media, this was through word of mouth, the time we spent with our, with our friends and family discussing this. We were, whether I was working in the hospital, I was creating office policies with my practice partners to protect patients, the staff, um, ourselves, I, I was creating rituals at home to protect family members, particularly my kids. Um, I was avoiding family members. My mom is and my dad are both medically complex. They're elderly. Um, not seeing them took a toll. Not seeing friends took a toll. And then I was trying to manage being a parent homeschooling, then online schooling, watching my kids decompensate from homeschool and online schooling. Um, and then as the pandemic began to wind down, trying to return to a new normal, right? That became the catchphrase, trying to return to a normal practice, which included catching up on all the postponed appointments, postponed referrals, postponed screening tests at a time when family physicians were being openly and not so openly disparaged for not working enough or seeing enough patients despite evidence-based studies otherwise. So when in 2021, I was faced with a medical issue followed by a family crisis, followed by a death in the family of a loved one, I, I broke, it was just too much. And given the increasing demands of work and then the demands of, of an unstable, personal and family life, I cut back wherever I could, just took away a lot of stuff. So I stopped advocating. I stopped providing health education um, in public forums. I put away, um, I pulled back from leadership roles and responsibilities. I stopped medical trainee education and I love teaching, but I stopped. I just didn't have the capacity to do it anymore. 
I stopped working in the hospital for a short period of time because I am not only a family physician and palliative care physician in the community, I also work in the hospital as an anesthetist. Um, there was no time off possible from family medicine um, because of logistics of trying to find a locum, being able to afford to pay a locum or a contract physician to take over my practice in my absence. Um, so I cut back on how quickly I process patients. So 20 minute appointments instead of 10. Um, I cut back on the time I used for administrative tasks. I, cut, I created these boundaries and very quickly I found that medicine, practicing medicine or working in the healthcare system is not compatible with boundaries. You do have to work a lot and you do have to work a lot during your off hours. And my story is not unusual for many physicians and many healthcare administrators. Um, and it's hard no matter where you work, whether it's in primary care, long-term care, hospital-based care. We know that taking care of patients is amazing. However, the administrative burden where you're trying to manage revenue and expenses as a primary care physician in your own um, in your own business, your own private business essentially, is, is not amazing. Prioritizing paperwork so that it does get done because those reports, those consult notes, all of those have to be filed. Those forms have to be filled out to be able to continue providing care. And yet, trying to keep up with them, the constant influx of information and test results is essentially impossible. And then faced with the resource shortages we see, it's, it truly takes a toll on you. And in this instance, billing becomes the last priority, even though it's part and parcel of managing revenue. And you need that revenue to take care of your staff, take care of your patients, and take care of yourself and your family. The IHI a few years ago, I can't remember how long ago, put out a paper on the joy of work and Longwoods actually has done a fair bit on this paper. I would encourage you to watch those because they do talk about what's within an individual's control when it comes to not just finding joy in work, but actively dealing with burnout, but what also falls under the responsibility of, of managers as well as senior leaders. And the extraordinary thing is that senior leaders and managers can have such a profound impact on their teams, including physicians, that can then translate to creating a workplace that's supportive, that people want to come into, where there's less turnover, where there's less early retirement, where there's where their patient care is just better. Right? Again, the whole reason why we went into healthcare is for the patients, our relationships with those patients. So how is burnout different from stress? For a long time, <clears throat> people equated burnout as an individual or considered burnout an individual problem and expected individual strategies to manage burnout. The stress response is an evolutionary response. It's a physiologic response. You're faced with a trigger, right? Your brain perceives a stressful trigger, and that can be a car accident, an exam, an unexpected illness, a deadline. And that trigger is your fight, flight, and freeze response that, that can have you perform above average strenuous activity that either deals with the problem 
runs away from the problem and hopefully not freezes in the face of the problem. Your brain, the hypothalamus becomes the command center and it organizes a cascade of events by communicating with the adrenal glands which pump out epinephrine and essentially as epinephrine pumps through your veins this is what happens your heart beats faster more blood is shunted to the muscles heart and other vital organs your lungs open up you breathe more rapidly getting more oxygen to those vital organs your sight hearing and other senses sharpen stored nutrients like glucose and fat are released into the body to supply energy your metabolism revs up basically you're pressing, you're hammering down on the gas pedal in your car. And often this occurs before you're even fully aware of it, of all that is going on, or even fully able to process it. This is such an instinctive response. After that initial hit, the brain switches to a series, a different pathway, where a series of hormone signals from the hypothalamus affects the pituitary glands and the adrenal glands, and you release this hormone called cortisol to keep your body revved up. And this is what keeps that gas pedal pressed down. And as the threat passes, the braking mechanism in your body activates and it settles the stress response down. In chronic stress, the story becomes a bit different. Your brain and your body force the stress response to continue and persistent epinephrine, persistent cortisol levels, they have, they take a toll on your body. And that's why we see that risk of metabolic syndrome, the risk of obesity, the risk of illnesses, the risk of delayed wound healing, just risk of delayed immune response, the risk of um, increased risk of heart attacks, strokes, high blood pressure, all of that start coming out, even the increased risk of cancer. So dealing with stress, acute stress and chronic stress requires individual strategies. And that can include the foundations of of health, right? Mindset, exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, all to manage that stress, career planning, financial literacy. Um, and a lot of these are preventative. And then in the acute moment, breathing techniques, mental math, recognizing, right? Taking a step back and recognizing that you control what your response is, even if you cannot control your situation even taking time off, right? Seeking out help that can help in ways, again, that will be part of your acute management as well as chronic management. Burnout, however, like I've said before, is a workplace related illness. And like you all well know, it's a workplace related illness. It's where the individual faces chronic stress. So that stress response that keeps going, that keeps being perpetuated, but it's not within their control to manage. And individual characteristics such as personality, interpersonal skills, and previous experience can influence how you cope with stress. However, um, burnout goes beyond that, beyond those coping skills. And this people who choose to become physicians, they're not necessarily inherent or more vulnerable to stress and burnout compared to others. So it really emphasizes the, the impact of work, right? Particularly work-related organizational and healthcare system factors in the current, current physician burnout crisis. And that includes workload, um, expectations or targets around productivity, which we've seen come out in the most recent 
recent um, physician uh, services agreement um, methods of compensation inefficiencies um, in scheduling systems, integration of care, EMRs, um, administrative burden, um, such as charting, again, EMR, that keeps coming up, expected detail of notes, meaningful use of notes. So this is where Abraham Verghese wrote an article um, how tech can turn doctors into clerical workers, highly paid clerical workers in the New York Times. And he wrote, physicians experience disillusionment not only at the start of their careers, when they're shocked to find that the focus on the ward doesn't revolve around the patient, but around the computer, um, but as they enter daily practice and, and realize that the patient becomes an icon, a placeholder for the real patient who's not in the bed, but in the computer. And this is where administrative, um, the administrative impact of, of work leads to burnout, right? And people start thinking, right? Who here hasn't thought this isn't what I signed up for? This isn't what brought me in. When we talk about strategies and effectiveness of interventions, it's not enough to say, thanks for all that you do. In fact, I, I realize that that's acknowledging someone's hard work but unfortunately, it can also um, make them hesitant to bring up that this is not what they want to do anymore, that this is beyond their capacity. It's kind of like when healthcare workers were called heroes during the pandemic. There were a number of physicians and healthcare workers who said, and they didn't say, necessarily say this publicly, but they said it to one another because we all kind of recognized it. I don't want to be a hero. Once I'm on that pedestal, I can't be human anymore. I can't, I can't talk about what it really feels like because I will, I'm expected to perform at this level and to not perform in it is going to be a, is going to be perceived as a failure. And so um, it impairs your ability to, to respond, right? So as an organization, yes, it's great to say thanks for all that you do but be wary, it is a double-edged sword. What works better is to assess, routinely assess what is happening in terms of the health of your healthcare workers. And good leadership means that you need to try and find out what is meaningful work for the doctor, involve them in creating peer support groups. There was an amazing one that a colleague of mine, Dr. Deepa Soni started creating and she worked through it with the Physician Health Program, also an amazing program through the Ontario Medical Association. Um, and I speak from personal as well as professional experience with them. Those peer support groups where you know that you're being understood, they not only decrease the, the stigma of asking for help, they also improve burnout scores. They decrease burnout scores by 10%, which is significant. The effects of organizational approaches though are, are much, much larger. And there are a number of things that organizations can do to help um, improve their culture, align their values with and strengthen their culture. Um, I had read about, uh, rewards and, and incentives, because I always find them interesting. I teach at the IHPME and one of the courses that I 
or the course that I teach goes into this idea of creating incentives, financial incentives, as well as other kinds of incentives and their impact on performance. Um, tying compensation to productivity, inevitable path to burnout. Doctors are workaholics because of high levels of educational debt and a desire to do everything for their patients. And they've seen unhealthy role modeling by their colleagues, whether it's previous colleagues or current colleagues, and this normalization of extreme work hours during training for those who are healthcare administrators or who are allied health staff, you'll see yourself in this, in this culture that we've all accepted. So for organizations, I would suggest consider other carrots instead, right? Greater flexibility in working hours. Don't just think nine to five. Um, don't just think they have to be there in person to be able to do their jobs, promote work-life balance and protect the time to pursue meaningful aspects of work, as well as opportunities for peer support groups and, and building personal relationships, building professional relationships. There was a, a paper that I read where one of the incentives was, one of the strategies that an organization had created was actually paying for dinners with peer groups among physicians, among other healthcare workers. It served as a team building exercise, but it also, again, aligned values of, of wanting your workers, wanting your staff to be healthy with, with your culture, right? With your, you're walking the talk, basically. And I certainly see that in my clinic when I pay for a lunch for my staff and we sit down, we chit chat, we eat, we, we're, breaking bread together, and it brings us closer together. There are some other strategies here, but in the interest of time, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to go into full detail, but the one of the ones that I am going to mention is the, the regulation piece. The CPSO, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, which is involved in managing burnout from a patient perspective um, and dealing with physician regulation, um, introduced alternative dispute resolution under this idea of right touch regulation. They recognized that regulation can't be necessarily punitive in all its approaches, but a lot of dispute resolution mechanisms can actually be um, alternative mechanisms, including options for handling low risk matters separately from high risk matters, right? And, and this work that they've done has actually improved the relationship between um, physicians and their regulatory college. It, it's made physicians realize that changing their practices um, will improve their burnout. Right touch regulation can also be incorporated into hospital systems, as well as small independent offices like mine. And again, that idea of quality improvement and peer interaction has encouraged professionalism that allows, um, that redesigns policies, again, to help improve physician burnout. Little things like the, this can, can have huge impact. In the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Daniel, Danielle Offrey wrote an article called Perchance to Think. And again, this, this talks about not just the pace of scientific knowledge, the escalating pace of scientific knowledge. It talks about um, 
the impact of EMRs and, and as well as billing. And, and what she wrote that she had this complex patient come in who had a number of issues they wanted to deal with. This is bread and butter for a lot of physicians, particularly those who practice outpatient medicine, particularly those who practice primary care like I do. And she wrote, um, she's sitting down across from the patient, the patient's talking, but a gazillion EMRs were demanding my attention. Three more charts waiting in my inbox. Patients still had two MRI reports and a uh, procedural report for me to review questions about PSA testing. He had come in with adrenal insufficiency, but his adrenal insufficiency was swamped by my cerebral insufficiency. And she said, I could tell him, I'd review his case later and get back to him, but what later were we talking about? Her clinic would run overtime by hours. There was there were lab work to review from last week, patient calls to return, medications to renew, forms and papers spilling out of my inbox. Reading this, it felt like I was looking at myself in the mirror. And and she's an internal medicine physician who, who does a lot of a lot of good care. And she realized she'd struck out on all accounts. I gave substandard care to my patient. She ended up just referring automatically, which meant dumping on my colleagues. And she still didn't fully grasp his biggest issue, which is adrenal insufficiency. And she wrote, if it requires thinking, I'm sunk. And it's an embarrassing admission for a field that prides itself on intellectual rigor. But with the frenetic pace of medicine today, there's no time or space for cogitation. When you are the organization, and, and this is true, I think, for in-office versus in-acute care versus in-long-term care, there's lessons to be learned here. Physicians have no training in business practices. No, they don't have departments. They don't have directors. Traditional labor laws don't actually apply to physicians. And, uh, and that makes it challenging to run an office, to manage the administrative tasks of an office. You can hire clinic managers, office managers, administrative staff, support staff, even billing agents. However, you need revenue to do so. And trying to pull that revenue out to run that office can be challenging and impossible if you don't actually know how to bill and bill well. Interestingly, the latest physician services contracts from BC and Manitoba and now Nova Scotia as well compensate physicians for that admin time because they recognize the necessity of managing the administrative burden that physicians face. And it's been found that that actually helps. Right? It's going to incur more um, recruitment, better recruitment, better retention of physicians in those provinces. One of the biggest things that um, they found, uh, one of the most unusual things they found is this idea of team-based care. And this is kind of what it can look like. Um, I'm lucky, I'm part of a team-based care model. And however, there's lessons for me to learn here because we certainly don't do this and it would make a difference in terms of day-to-day -day practice. Um, so what does this look like? So pre-visit planning, a team member of nurses, medical assistants, um, or scribes even, right? So a team member, apart from the physician, obtains outside medical records, lab results, get it all together. The patient completes a pre-visit questionnaire. Um, 
You may have pre-visit lab testing already ordered, right, by a physician or a designate. Um, for diabetes visits, there's very predictable blood work that has to get, get done, annual checkups, same sort of thing. That can be moved out of the physician-patient, direct physician-patient interaction, or at least pre-populated. Starting with a team huddle, and I see this in hospitals to good effect, but I certainly don't see this in primary care offices, including mine, having a huddle to plan the clinic day's activities rather than doing it at the last minute or as you go along. Um, having nurses or medical assistants entering certain elements of the assessment of the medical history, um, performing the medication reconciliation, and then handing off to the physician who at that point enters the scene, validates the entered data, asks in more detail, um, and then adds to the documentation that's already been begun, right? And having a scribe to help with documentation, it's one of the OMA's recommendations on decreasing physician burnout. I mean, I would love to have a scribe um, to, to help, but, and provide the additional history, document the treatment plan, and then you go through patient education, reviewing the plans of care, conducting follow-up, um, preparing an after-visit summary, one to give to the patient so that they understand what's happened in their visit, they know what the plan of action is, and then signing off. All of this right now is done in a physician office by the physician themselves, and that's unnecessary. And then after all of this, I do patient-relevant paperwork, most physicians do. And then after that comes billing. It's it's last on the list. And it really shouldn't be. Because again, that is what keeps the practice going, right? For better or for worse, billing does keep the practice going. So at this point, I'm going to hand over to Sarah Wilkinson to continue talking about billing modernization. Thank you so much. Um, that was you know, that was that was always really moving to hear you kind of speak through your experiences and what you've gone through personally and how we can all kind of take a look and how that reflects on our own lives, whether we are individual physicians ourselves, whether we're nurses, healthcare administrators, wherever we fit in that healthcare system, um, understanding how we could apply those lessons to our lives. So, I, you know, you raised a great point, Nadia, that um, you know, on a previous slide, you raised, you know, uh, things that matter in burnout, there's, there's revenue and there's practice support. And billing is quite literally the intersection of both of those things. As you mentioned, billing as unsexy as it is, as unloved as it is, and I get why it's unloved, it is literally the thing that keeps revenue flowing into the coffers of either whether that's an individual physician or the clinic or the hospital department or the telemedicine company um, or whoever it may be that's actually delivering care to Canadians. And Billing in the healthcare system has been around for quite some time, right? Whether it was paper-based billing, um, mail-based billing, early digital solutions. Um, but what I'm here to talk about today is what I'd like to call modern billing, um, because it's time that billing, like every other payment rail in the country, started operating along like modern user principles so that we actually put our practitioners and our physicians at the center of what we do. So what is modernized billing? Thank you so much. So there are three ways that I would sort of classify what is a modern billing platform. The first thing, a modern billing platform is something that mitigates or prevents errors from happening 
before they even occur. Not reacts, doesn't just accept the fact that errors might just happen and then and then we'll call the provincial insurance insurances like OHIP, MSP, et cetera, to see what might be up. But instead, a billing service that actually looks to prevent it before it happens. The second thing that makes billing modern it would be a billing solution that prioritizes the human experience. Um, sitting in the healthcare industry, I think a lot of us spend a lot of time focusing on the patient or some people, the, the people experience side of it, right? How do we make sure that that patient is well taken care of? How do we focus on that patient experience? I would also argue that modern billing requires really focusing on the provider experience and putting the provider at the center of that journey. Um, we ask providers to interact with a lot of systems that don't match modern standards for good interaction, right? Providers have cell phones and Uber, and they know what a good interaction looks like. They know what it is to have a seamless interaction, giving them green screens and thousands of pieces of paperwork and overwhelming notifications. That's, it is unfair for billing software or other pieces of software to expect practitioners to operate in that way. So I would say that, you know, the second piece of what makes billing modern is a piece of software that really centers the practitioner experience. And the third thing is that it's flexible and interoperable. So it shouldn't be a uh, a thing that happens at the either at the end of the day or it happens over there, like in a corner. Modern billing should be with the physician wherever they are. So whether that's in an application that's in their pocket, whether that's um, on a web application when they log in after work at home, whether that's integrated with their EMR, whether that's taking a data feed, whether that's the ability to take in you know, day sheets if absolutely necessary, the ability to integrate and work with all the different pieces of the healthcare system. Those are the key pieces of what makes a billing system modern because all of these things, that is actually what gives time and capacity back to physicians and in turn ends up giving capacity back into the healthcare system and delivers better healthcare outcomes for our patients. Uh, next slide, please. So as we were mentioning, billing is really the core of it, right? Because the ability to get reimbursed, right, for what care actually gets provided is what actually ends up funding the ongoing work at that individual clinic or with that, or with that department or with those physicians. We really like to see it as part of an administrative burden. So we recognize that billing is not the only thing that burdens a physician's life. As Dr. Nadia was saying, whether it's the EMR giving you many different notifications, colleagues asking for help, more paperwork in other areas, we recognize that we're not the entire spectrum of things that can be improved. But the goal of a modernized billing solution is to at least address this one piece, this key piece that actually keeps the money flowing between government entities and between physicians. Next slide, please. So what does this actually look like? So, so to going back to one of my previous points around why is it important to have a piece of billing software that prevents and doesn't just accept errors, this is why. So here at Dr. Bill, you know, we service about 10,000 of Canada's 90,000 physicians. We get them paid and we take a look at our own data. And from our own data, what we can see is that the average physician 
has at least six claim errors per month. And as far as we can tell, if a physician isn't using uh, a modern billing solution, it takes that physician on average one hour to actually resolve that claim. And that could be everything from going into previous OR notes. That could be everything from waiting on hold with OHIP. That could be everything from resubmitting new paperwork. That could even just include trying to interpret the information that comes from OHIP. Because as everyone here knows, the remittance files that we all get from OHIP aren't exactly written in plain English. And so even interpreting them themselves is its own separate work. Now, if you take that six hours a month and you expand that across uh, the 35,000 physicians in Ontario, that alone, right, is about 209,000 hours. That's about 28,000 working days. That's a million patient visits that don't happen every month. And this slide really frames it in terms of capacity. This slide frames it in terms of if we were able to give these six hours back to physicians, imagine how much more patient care could be provided. But the second piece of it, and the second very important piece of it, and that's why we're here talking about burnout today, is what if those 28,000 working hours could also go back to the physicians themselves, right? So it's not just about taking away work in order to add more work to plates, but instead saying, how can we give this time back to physicians to make sure that they can care about their practice, take care of their families, do anything else that doesn't actually have to do with the submission of billings or the care of patients. These are valuable and important things too. And I don't think we spend enough time acknowledging just how important these smaller personal things can be in preventing the, the ongoing burnout or the leaving of physicians from the healthcare system. So this for us, this, this is really why we get out of bed in the morning because we want to make sure that we're one, adding capacity back into the system where we can, but also two, trying to make sure that physicians have their time back. If we can move on to the next slide. Thank you so much. So perhaps one of the questions that I get um, here at Dr. Bill, and I've gotten it more than once is, why is Dr. Bill invested in burnout? Like, how did we get between medical billing to physician burnout? Like, yes, I, I see the relationship between revenue and billing, but how did we get to burnout? And for me, the answer is pretty simple. So we are a tech company, right? We were founded out in 2014. And like any tech company, we call our users, which happen to be physicians, and we call them whenever they don't use our service after a certain amount of time, right? We give them a call and we say, hey, like we haven't seen you log in in like a while. Is everything okay? Is our service doing what it's supposed to do? Is your app broken? What's going on? And what we kept on getting was not, you know, day-to-day -day application concerns. What we got faced with were physicians who were burnt out so we were on the phone every single day with physicians being like, ah, the, the reason you haven't seen a claim from me or the reason why I haven't logged in is because I've stepped back from practice or I've gone on short-term disability or I'm taking a six-month break to go focus on my family. And at a certain point, it just got really, really overwhelming. And that's when we kind of looked around and said to ourselves, yes, billing is billing, but we're part of something bigger. We're part of making sure that physicians are going to be okay and that we're going to be, that, that they're, they're, they're humans as well. And we're here to try and make sure that that human experience makes that through. So given everything that we've heard today about like what is physician burnout, 
and how this one piece of like billing modernization can assist with that. Where does this all kind of like leave us? Um, three takeaways I perhaps propose for this group. The, the first takeaway is that modernization and, the, and like ways of reducing physician burnout around the billing system don't require a pilot. They don't require a POC. There's no big investment in you know language models or big data or artificial intelligence. Um, these tools exist today. Um, they're, they're right here, they're right around the corner. And so there are solutions that are ready to go. The second thing, and you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, is that investments in administrative burden is not just an investment in physician capacity. It's also an investment in physicians as our fellow humans, but it's also an investment in patient outcomes. Giving time back to physicians is how we ensure better outcomes for our patients. And then finally, we're also really invested in putting our money where our mouth is. So in addition to, you know, um, this wonderful talk that we're having today at Longwoods, and thank you so much for having us both. Um, the Dr. Bill team has also made a donation to the Ontario Medical Foundation, which is the charitable arm of the OMA, the Ontario Medical Association. And this $150,000 is specifically designed as a charitable grant to fund research into physician uh, solutions for physician burnout. So as Dr. Nadia was saying earlier, there are many surveys, there are dozens of surveys now at this point that quantify just how widespread physician burnout is, but we're really interested in investing in solutions to that physician burnout. And so we're really excited over the next couple of weeks uh, to announce who the actual winners of those grants are. Well, there'll be three physician-led research grants about designing solutions for reducing physician burnout. So overall, thank you so much for having us both. And I think we'll start to open it up for questions, but again, Thank you so much. We really appreciated the opportunity. Uh, Sarah, Nadia, thank you uh, so much. As I kind of go through and review the questions, I was just, I think one of the important things um, that was kind of discussed today is making sure that we offer tools and resources and all that sort of thing for our physicians. And, and I'm wondering whether or not we do have enough tools and resources and are they well shared and are they well accessible? Um, I don't know what sort of experience, Nada, you might have had with that. So when there are tools that are available, the knowledge about them has not been disseminated well. So often physicians are unaware. Um, I myself, so taking billing as an example, there are a number of companies that, that help physicians with billing. Most of the time, we particularly those in outpatient, actually, no, it's true, whether it's acute care, long-term care, or outpatient primary care, um, we submit our billings on our own. And with all of these companies, they have valuable insights to offer. I myself have learned a lot from Dr. Bill's um, information handouts. I've been 15 years in practice. I still learned something new last week. Like, how sad is that? The schedule of benefits is um, has about 7,000 codes that and about a few hundred are applicable just to primary care alone. It's extraordinary trying to sift through all of that. There are resources available. Unfortunately, physicians don't know very much about them. And unfortunately, a lot of them are financially or logistically out of reach for a number of physicians. We don't have 
the time to go searching for them. Sarah talked about the time wasted trying to just do billing. And that's yep. one aspect of administrative work. It's, it's just beyond us, to be honest. Can I build on that really quickly, Nadia? So you mentioned that under stress, we might be looking at like flight or fight responses, right? It is it is crazy to think that on top of all the stressors that a physician's going through, just trying to get paid, period, for the work that they've already done, to look to physicians to do a procurement process, essentially, for themselves or for their clinic, to evaluate like the pros and cons. It is like, it's really difficult, right? Let alone once you expand that out to at a departmental level, right? That's taking a look at like how they're making money. It's really difficult to do. So yeah, so so Matt, to your point, I, I think for me, like it's, it, it is a little bit of a chicken and an egg as, as sad as that may be, which is that adding capacity back into the system sometimes requires finding the space for a physician to first look for a new way of doing something. So there, there are a number of questions um, and so, one of the, one of the earlier ones is I, I know Nadia you have a policy background, so what role can policy play in this this whole physician burnout? The government is involved with a lot of the way of how the system is structured, and that in itself can create stressors that can lead to burnout, workplace stressors that can lead to burnout. So policymakers. Being involved with government, being involved with the professional organizations, whether it's the Ontario Medical Association, whether it's the Ontario Nursing Association, whether it's even the Chambers of Commerce has a policy section on their own because they recognize the need for healthcare and how healthcare can stabilize a community and make or break a community. Um, working with OMD, for example, there's a number of organizations that policymakers can work with to start chipping away at this problem. Like Sarah noted, billing is one aspect of burnout. There's a number of aspects that go into it in tackling the administrative, the overall administrative burden. If we work together, policymakers and professional organizations, and then work with the government, I, I truly believe, maybe it's too optimistic, but I truly believe there's a way to at least decrease the mess that we're in, lessen the mess that we're in. Um, I spoke about some of the strategies there. Policymakers, if they work with um, healthcare provider organizations to put in some of those suggestions, again, would make a difference. I think there's a significant role policymakers can have in this. So there, there, there are a couple of questions that are focusing on AI. Um, and we all know that AI is um, coming faster than anybody is ready for. Um, do you see a role in for AI in, in physician burnout and mental health and that sort of area? Maybe I'll ask Sarah to start and then I can build on her answer. Absolutely. So I have a, I have a two-part answer. Um, the first answer is that I think that AI is a wonderful tool. And I also think that sometimes it's a little bit of a hammer in search of a nail. And I think that we think that AI should be applied to all potential problems. So I think my very first one is that there is definitely, I'll speak about the billing side of things, there's definitely opportunity for AI to help 
with a lot of different billing things. As not, as Dr. Naya was mentioning, scribes, right? The ability to take a physician's voice and turn that into text. And then most importantly, turn that text into something usable, whether it's on the EMR, whether it's in a billing situation, wherever, in a review, wherever it may go. That for me is, is probably one of the most interesting use cases that I've seen over the last little while. Just to bring back to my first caveat though, um, there are billing companies in, in Canada and in the US who say that they have like AI powered billing engines. They, they probably don't actually have an AI powered billing engine. It's probably just a rules engine run on Excel and that's okay. That doesn't mean that it's, it's worse or wrong or bad. Sometimes there's just a, a slightly different, like sometimes the easier solution or the simpler solution is, is just as good as the more complex one. Yeah, sorry, I agree with Sarah. No, I totally agree with you. Um, artificial intelligence, I think, has a role to play in the healthcare industry, and we're seeing more and more of that. It actually does play a role in healthcare already when you look at fields like oncology or dermatology <clears throat> or radiology. But one, you have to be careful when you start introducing it to manage complex patients. It, it can become tricky. It can become unwieldy on its own because, again, it's, it's another program to consider. It's another policy to learn and become familiar with. It's another piece of technology that can, in some ways, dehumanize the care you're doing. That's the risk. Um, and we've seen that risk with some of the programs. Like I'll speak about primary care, for example, with some of the programs that are getting into providing or integrating AI into primary care, such as um, Babylon, right? We, we know what Babylon, for those who aren't familiar with Babylon, basically you call and an artificial intelligence platform, um, kind of like Siri or Alexa, start, starts running through what your condition could be. They start assessing you, they start diagnosing you, they, they start managing you. There is risk in that, right? One, um, there can be mistakes. Two, there can be um, a loss of humanity and relationships. Like part of the reason why patient care works is that connection with the healthcare professional, right? That's, that's how it works. And in fact, there's a healing involved in relationships. So yes, artificial intelligence can help with certain kinds of um, certain parts of reducing the administrative burden. I love the idea of, and I'm actually interested in figuring out how to use AI in terms of charting, because charting is one of the banes of my existence along with billing. <laughs> and, um, but you can't use it to replace that human interaction because then patient care falls by, through the cracks. It really does. There's definite risk to that. Um, one of the last things I, I, you brought it up, Nadia, and there's been some more notes on it and the uh, uh, government relationship. Um, I don't, we, we, this is, this is a, another conversation in its own, uh, managing the government and how to approach the government and how to work with the government. Do you have any last thoughts on how do we work with the government? Um, whether or not it, it, it's uh, miscommunication, lack of communication, um, bureaucratic um, red tape, all that sort of thing. Are there any last thoughts on that? Keep it simple. Focus yeah. on one thing at a time. If you go in with a laundry list of 
suggested changes, and it's not just a comment on government, it's a comment on humans in general. We don't have the cognitive capacity to deal with um, a large influx of information. Instead, what we focus on are pieces here and there. So going in with a focused question and a focused solution can be very helpful. And then making room for <clears throat> the recognition that they may have competing ideas and requests um, that are going to occupy their response, that are going to shape their response. Um, realizing that maybe the solution should be more complex, or maybe, as Sarah said, the solution should be simpler so that it does have a broader impact to improve the healthcare system overall. Um, one of the, the thoughts that I read the other day um, was this idea of, of saying something as simple as maybe you're right, right? Just that, that idea that you don't have to be confrontational, that you can make room for another person's expertise and, and recognize that maybe your expertise, your own expertise isn't enough. Maybe you're missing something that they can pick up on. So going to the government with the idea of collaboration, I think can be helpful. That said, if you see um, decision-making that isn't supportive of and isn't going to have an impact, being able to gently point that out becomes important. You can't just stay silent, right? That's why the burnout epidemic has become so big. It's a lot of us stayed silent for so long, whether we didn't reach out for help or whether we didn't offer help um, or change organizational practices to manage burnout. So staying silent serves nobody, right? You can offer criticism and feedback and, and alternative ideas if you speak up. If you stay silent, nothing happens. So we are flat out of time. Um, I wanted to thank Sarah and Nadia for, for today. Uh, these are important discussions to keep going. And um, I wanted to wish everybody a fantastic day. And we will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.